Hello, welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAPS and Board of View podcast. We're your hosts, Ben Young and Andrew Powell. Just a reminder that these episodes are meant for medical education only, not to diagnose things on anyone's eyes. Each week, we take a high yield topic and talk about the why and the how. What are we talking about this week? This week, we're talking about recurrent corneal erosions. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, this is something that eventually, if you're someone that's kind of earlier in the training, you'll definitely see. And I think it's important to know these are not just like corneal abrasions. You know, you don't just at the exam, everything is not just like, oh, it's an abrasion that happens over and over. It's, it's pretty different from that. So I think it's important to go into those details. So, I mean, Andrew kind of already said what it is. It's some erosions of the cornea that happen recurrently. What are some of the most common causes of that, Andrew? A little bit like our last or two episodes ago uh, when we were talking about hyphemas, it's again trauma that is the most common cause for this etiology, for this entity, the recurrent corneal erosions. And for reasons that will become more clear when we talk about the mechanism of recurrent corneal erosions, it's usually sharp trauma. So classically, it's like a fingernail or a tree branch um, compared to, you know, blunt trauma can cause corneal abrasions, but they lead you to getting a recurrent corneal erosion. It's usually something sharp. The other aspect of it is it can actually happen a lot uh temporally a lot later than you'd expect. So it can present years after that initial fingernail gets to the eye or tree branch or whatever. And, you know, to to clarify the for the um, people earlier in training who haven't seen as many of these, you know, usually when we say trauma, we mean there was some kind of traumatic initial corneal abrasion, like your standard abrasion that, you know, you might see in the emergency room or, or whatnot. But then there's an issue in the healing process that leads to them to be very susceptible to later with minimal to no apparent trauma having uh, symptoms very similar to a corneal abrasion. But when you see them, they may not have a corneal abrasion and we'll go into how that can happen why later. Right. So that's why, like, that's why, you know, even like years later, someone can have a symptoms that are almost seem exactly like a corneal abrasion. And to distinguish, remember, an abrasion is when the epithelium is, like, frankly removed from the eye. That's what we mean when we say abrasion. They can look and, well, they can sound exactly like they have an abrasion, but they didn't. And then they can tell you, oh, yeah, I had an abrasion or I had some significant trauma to the eye, like, last year, but nothing happened this time. I just woke up with this pain. And we'll go into how that can happen in a bit. So if if the cause isn't trauma, like, if the patient didn't, tell you like they had some traumatic event in the past year or maybe past couple years. And then the next thing that it could be is a corneal dystrophy can lead to this. Um, and before we talk about which corneal dystrophies, maybe we should first go into the pathogenesis or pathophysiology of why erosions happen. As, as we just were saying, it has to do with an issue with healing of the corneal epithelium. So remember, the, the corneal epithelial cells are adherent or supposed to be adherent not only to each other, but to the basement membrane that's underlying them via hemidesmosomes. They think that in people who have recurrent corneal erosions, that there is some issue with adherence of the epithelium to that underlying basement membrane. And that's why the cornea, corneal epithelium, it's still on the eye, but with minimal trauma or without much happening, you can kind of um, dislodge it from that basement membrane, which can cause a lot of the symptoms of a corneal abrasion. 
so along those lines, the corneal dystrophies that might cause corneal erosions are those that affect the epithelium basement membrane complex, the most common of which is epithelial basement membrane dystrophy, otherwise known as MAP dot fingerprint dystrophy. I think, is there another name for it? I feel like there's like a thousand names for these, this thing. Yeah, there's Kogan's microcystic dystrophy or anterior basement membrane dystrophy. So, I, you know, ABMD or EBMD, I've seen that variously everywhere. Yeah. And, you know, we had another episode that reviewed corneal dystrophies. So if you want to hear kind of more about it, then you can go back to, I think it was corneal dystrophies part one. That was like episode number three so long ago. Yeah, it was like, yeah, it was like one of the very first ones. But but basically, it's also a problem where there's some problem with, as, as the name implies, between the epithelium and basement membrane. You can get infoldings of the epithelium on itself because it's not adhering to the basement membrane well. So you can see things that look like little epithelial dots, epithelial maps, and epithelial fingerprints, these kind of more geographic linear areas of epithelial disruption, and that's that's EBMD. So when you look at a patient with corneal erosions, that's why you should not only look at the eye that has the problem, but look very carefully at the other eye to see if they have a corneal dystrophy. Now, there's a couple other dystrophies that can also lead to this. Andrew, do you, can you list any of them for us? Yeah, so this is fundamentally a problem of the basement membrane uh, not adhering well to the epithelium. So it makes sense that things affecting that area of the cornea, the anterior stroma, the uh, Bowman's layer, that those sorts of corneal dystrophies would really manifest as a problem for recurrent corneal erosions also. So those include all the you know anterior stromal ones, the ones you know and love, lattice corneal dystrophy, macular, granular corneal dystrophy, but also Reese Buckler and Teal Benke, and I'm I'm not sure we ever agreed how those are supposed to be pronounced. Yeah, apologies, Dr. Benke. But, uh, you know, <laughs> Reese Buckler, Teal Benke, those are dystrophies of Bowman's layer. So that also makes sense. Yeah, and as a reminder, the difference, well, one of the histopathologic differences between Reese Buckler and Teal Benke is Reese Buckler kind of looks like more of like a sheet-like issue with the connective tissue, and Teal Benke is more sawtooth. So as a result, Reese has more, can have more epithelial erosions because you can imagine the sawtooth pattern may help kind of the, with the adherence of the epithelium to the basement membrane. So Reese for erosions. I don't know if that helps. <laughs> Reese for ravaging. I don't know. Yeah, recurrent. Reese always sounded a little more aggressive to me than teal. Right? Um, I don't want to get into like the psychopathology that leads you to that diagnosis, like who in your childhood bullied you. Do you to, not make these associations, that? like which word sounds hastier and that's, that underpins a lot of my medical training. <laughs> Is, which, I think like, I, I think it's just, I have like less a literary brain than yours. That's so, or is there just words? Very Like, you know how, you. I, I bet no. I mean, I bet you know when you say like a word like tree over and over, the word tree like loses its meaning. That happens extremely quickly for me, and I bet that it, like you can hold on to the semantic value of the word tree much longer than I. Wow! So you are take it as an so advantage good for now. now at just sort of fluffing up your seniors. You're going to be a great fellow. <laughs> you're you're like a multiple states away. I don't consider you my senior anymore. You're, <laughs> You're just that guy across the way with another microphone. Um, okay. 
Cool. So, you know, those are really the causes of recurrent corneal erosions. Someone who has them should have one of these two things in their history, either an epithelial basement membrane dystrophy or like interstromal dystrophy that can lead into there or uh, some type of uh, sudden sharp trauma to their cornea in the past. Is there anything else that one can think about in the history, Andrew, with recurrent corneal erosions? Uh, yeah, there's a good bunch of things that are you can consider them risk factors that if they're present will make this diagnosis yet more likely. And it's uh, some of them are obvious because they affect this corneal surface, like dry eye, ocular rosacea, and whether or not they've had um, herpetic keratitis before. But then diabetes wants to randomly jump in there also. And diabetes does a lot of weird things with wound healing, as we know, and I guess maybe that's how you can remember it. Yeah, I think that's well, I didn't find a good reason in my reading about why diabetes is kind of in there. Maybe it could be due to like impaired nerve, like corneal sensation too. I don't know. Yeah. But um, but these things can make it easier for it to happen. But they're not like, except for maybe herpetic keratitis, they're not like the cause by themselves. So, you know, we, so we talked about causes and such, but I guess maybe we should maybe we should have started with this. How do patients present when they have a recurrent corneal erosion? Like, what what are they going to call you with? Uh, usually, they're not doing anything. And out of the blue, suddenly their eye starts hurting, often in the middle of the night or just when they've woken up, really. So it usually it does seem to have this like <laughs> circadian association, but it's not really that. It's just that, well, for a couple different reasons, they can just, upon opening their eyes, just that mild, like, you know, the wild, unrestrained act of opening their eyelids can tear off that very loose epith- loosely attached epithelium. But also at nighttime, people think that the tear film gets a little more watery because of more evaporation or because of less evaporation, sorry. You're not opening your eyes at night, so the tear film isn't evaporating off as much. So it might become more hypotonic, more watery, which would allow for more like corneal edema, mild epithelial edema, which can you can imagine if, if there's more water in the glue than the glue's not going to want to hold as well or something. So this increased edema can promote the release of the epithelium or promote the erosion of that epithelium right off, either when they're opening their eyes or, again, when their eyes are dancing around in, like, rapid eye movement sleep. So it's not the circadian mm-hmm. rhythm itself. Sorry, that was a bit of a misnomer that I gave sent out there. But sleeping or nighttime does seem to provoke this for those reasons. Yeah, keeping those eyelids closed. And so when you see these people, the, the patients with this problem, they may have that frank epithelial defect. The epithelium could come right off, but their epithelium could also be completely on there. Like it could be completely attached to their eye. And in fact, it can be typical for them to have an intact epithelial, epithelial surface. Like their fluorescein will not stain anything. The, the reason for that is... It just takes movement of the corneal epithelium off from where it originally was to cause these abrasion-like symptoms of pain, photophobia, tearing. You can kind of think of it like if you have a rug, you know, on the floor, if the rug gets shifted or something, you know, then that will cause the pain. So the epithelium is like that rug. And if it gets a wrinkle in it or it gets shifted or anything like that, then it can cause pain. So it can be very confusing when you're doing your exam. It sounds like an abrasion. You see them and you're expecting to see an abrasion, but there isn't one. So it can take some pretty careful examination to help elucidate the cause of their pain. So 
what you might see is kind of heaped up borders of epithelium in the area where the epithelium kind of got dislodged. So maybe mildly elevated. So when you put fluorescein on there, they may actually have negative staining because that area may be somewhat edematous or or heaped up from this kind of um, slipped rug effect that it's elevated in the pool of fluorescein. So instead of positive staining, you may get a little bit of negative staining. Before you put the fluorescein in though, we suggest that you look for subtle findings like epithelial cysts, or some people describe it as kind of like a ragged, edematous looking uh, gray epithelium. So it might just look a little bit off gray in that area. And retroillumination. One other trick to try to find this kind of dislodged rug effect is take like a surgical sponge, like I imagine like a wax cell, but you know, something that's um, soft, um, anesthesiae, soak that sponge in the anesthetic or <clears throat> or whatever you have. And then you can gently put it on the epithelium and see if the epithelium is freely moving. Kind of like if you're moving conjunctiva, you know, to see if someone has episcleritis or not, you can kind of try to gently move the epithelium and, you know, it should be adherent. If it's kind of gently moving back and forth with your surgical sponge, then that also is very suggestive of a recurrent corneal erosion. But, you know, I think everyone would agree that even with the best examiner that you may not find a sign, you may not see these very subtle epithelial changes in someone with a recurrent corneal erosion. So that's why history and looking, that's why either looking for a history of trauma or corneal dystrophy, which you could do by looking at the other eye, can help you um, figure out this diagnosis. All agreed. Okay. Yeah. Okay, but okay, so but we did it, Andrew. We we saw this person with this, you know, eye pain, and it figured out they have recurrent corneal erosion. Now what? <laughs> Do we just high five and say, "Okay, you got this, Rollo. See you later." Uh, I don't know if this is worth telling, but I remember being so impressed as a first year resident with one of my senior residents for diagnosing this like over the phone. You know, like just uh -huh. like, wow. You know ophthalmology so well that you know exactly what weird disease entity this is, and there's not even an abrasion that I can find. And now I now I kind of realize mm -hmm. this is like <laughs> the one thing you can. Yeah, it's not uncommon. Yeah, yeah, it's like the one thing. It's like the one thing. So you should always like you should still examine the patients uh, to make sure it's not a corneal ulcer right, or right, something. Right. So I'm not advocating no, that, not that, but, 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 but yes, phone but yes, they could for anything. But I just remember like, wow, you really yeah. know your stuff. <laughs> Um, okay, but what, what do you do after, after we, we high five, five and say, then we I got it? Turn back to the patient and say, I guess we have to try to make you feel better. And we throw a lot of different eye drops at him for that reason. Again, funny thing is, there's your usual ones that you would give to everybody, like lubrication, lubricating eye drops. Of course, that's going to make, especially if there is an abrasion, that's really going to help soothe and protect those, you know, exposed corneal nerve endings. Sometimes we also cycloplege them just for their pain relief. The uh, the real gem here is the Miro drops, all the hypertonic saline and sodium chloride 5% stuff that you want to use. Because like we kind of mentioned earlier, again, if there's at all a little bit of edema, some hypotonicity to the area, then maybe that corneal epithelium will be able to float off of its moorings a little more easily than it should. So if you dry it up a little bit, if you introduce hypertonic saline there instead, that newly hypertonic environment might promote better adherence of the epithelium. It is true, though, that just this really salty 
water stuff can really bother and irritate people. And, you know, the problem they came to you with is bothersomeness. Mm-hmm. So, uh, sodium chloride, like hypertonic sodium chloride, is something that we should all try mm-hmm. as first line. But depending how your patient, you know, kind of reacts to it, maybe it's something they won't be on indefinitely, perhaps. But some people can be on it indefinitely. Right. Right. Yeah. You know, the d- different texts kind of cite different timelines for how much they want to use it. And, you know, again, it's, this isn't really for symptomatic comfort. It's a lot of it is to try to, to, to fix the underlying problem, which is that adhesion of epithelium in the basement membrane. So BCSE recommends six weeks of hypertonic mm-hmm. treatment. Kansky appears to generally recommend at least six months, um, which is something that, like, in my experience is also like you have to do at least for a couple months for for uh, for someone to, to have better epithelial adhesion to try to reduce the incidence of recurrent erosions. But like we said before, someone can have it like a year after they had um, some kind of traumatic abrasion. So, yeah, you know. And if they're going to be on it for that long, you can probably just transition them to nightly ointment instead. Since especially since you know nighttime is when that edema happens most often anyway. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, ointment is like the kind of mo- if you're gonna pick one, uh, ointment is the more important one. Uh, in terms of weird stuff, <laughs> one can use. You can try. I mean, yeah. So like ointment is like number one. Uh, you know, uh, hypertonic saline ointment. But one can use doxycycline or even short-term corticosteroids, like topical uh, corticosteroids, and they can be helpful because they can minimize local. Met- matrix metalloproteinase action, which may be involved in that disruption of the epithelial base membrane adhesion. So using those can kind of short circuit that hopefully um, the uh, MMP action, and especially like in the acute uh, setting, might help to promote adhesion. <laughs> I but, feel like whenever someone pulls yeah, out matrix that's not first line. proteinases, it's like, all right, hand wavy central now. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, hand, I hand like waving. Take but, one of those you know. apples to apples cards and write MMPs on it or some mm-hmm. kinds and just mm-hmm. anything you want. <laughs> You'll get like 40% of the OCAP <laughs> questions right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, the, you know, th- those are some of the medical treatments. Is there anything else that you can do for a patient before going to the surgical treatments? Mm-hmm. Short of eye drops, yeah. You, you can consider like barrier protections, otherwise, like bandage contact lenses but that's really kind of iffy because as soon as they take it off yeah. you know they, the epithelium could come right off with that so you right, make sure exactly. if you're doing it that the bcl fits first of all and that the person doing it at least knows how to put in contact lenses let alone you know putting them and removing them gently and well <laughs> it's it's overall kind of iffy i'd say but it's possible yeah, like some people will have them just leave it in and have keep them topical antibiotics. But if you're going to do that for a long period of time, then you know that can be a little risky yeah. by itself too in terms of antibiotic resistance. And you know, the big thing though is make sure the BCL fits. You know, um, if it's too tight and they blink, <laughs> it's going to drag their epithelium off, and you've kind of yeah. defeated your purpose. So you you can use it maybe in like the short term, like to help them get over an acute episode, but. You know, we don't see it as a long-term solution. If you have experience otherwise, then let us know. If you love BCLs in this, um, in this, then let us know. Patching is you know? kind of the same, too, um, right? And like, it could prevent things yeah. from touching the eye, but it could also touch the eye itself. Yeah. Th- this isn't evidence-based, really, but I hate patching. Like, we had just a nightmare case of patching once in residency where um, 
someone was thought to have an abrasion, they were treated with a patch, and then I think they were even seen 24 hours later. It might have been two days, but it was only one or two days later they were seen, that patch was taken off, and their cornea was totally whited out. Um, it turned out like a very small pseudomonas corneal ulcer was not noted initially the exam. Maybe it wasn't there. Maybe it occurred because this was like a contact lens wearing patient. But um, but yeah, then the the whole cornea got whited out, and that's not the only time that that can happen. But that's not um, necessarily you know I'd patch though. <laughs> it's not, but I'd rather them have them have been on. like it could have happened no matter what treatment you put them on. You know, pseudomonas is crazy. But um, I would have rather than been on like a topical antibiotic. And I don't think there's like great evidence patching inc- improved symptoms tremendously. So is it like, you know, specifically corneal symptoms tremendously. So that's that's why like, I like I haven't patched since that, like since, since that, that incident. I just either if I think they need the pain relief, I put a BCL in. Otherwise, I try just like a ton of lubrication yeah. and drops to give that barrier protection. But, you know, I get it if, if you know, if, if you want to do patching. There, there is a suggestion. There is a suggestion that tight patching may increase corneal temperature, which may facilitate replication of microorganisms, which lead, can lead can increase the chance of microbial keratitis after an abrasion. My God, that's so in much addition, hand waving. <laughs> in addition, no, they have a citation. Seriously? It's not hand waving. They have a little five next to it. They have a citation. In addition. <laughs> The presence of a patch can reduce available oxygen to the healing epithelium, which can slow the reepithelialization process. Remember, the oxygen for the epithelial cells does not come from any blood vessels because there's no blood vessels in the corneal epithelium. The um, posterior part of the cornea gets its oxygenation from the anterior chamber, but the anterior part generally gets it from like free air. So for these reasons, uh, th- those are some like, these are hand waves, <laughs> but for, for these reasons... That's why some people feel that that patent. There's, in fact, oh, here, here's one study. Let me let me cite it for Where's people. Where's my Kansky? There's a study. Uh, yeah, yeah, pull it out. Kirkpatrick in the journal I, 1993, uh, did a study and showed that people with patching may have healed somewhat slower. There's actually a few studies that that examine this question. So, I mean, I I don't think it's a criminal to use a patch, but. Anyways, we were we were basically turning this into a patching episode. We should move. On. We haven't even mentioned amblyopia. <laughs> um, yeah, I know. Oh yeah, amblyopian kids. Um, okay, so that's like that's basically non-surgical management. Now let's talk about okay. surgical stuff. So all the other stuff is first line. Like that's what I do first. But if it's not working, that's when you can consider or to keep continuing to have recurrent erosions, even with these therapies. Let's think and talk about other things. So what's what's one treatment one can do? Uh, all these things are, I feel like, are uh, on a spectrum of scorched earth campaigns because it's like if your right. basement membrane complex isn't working, then either aggro it and just keep bothering it until somehow it might work a little better, or just destroy it completely and start from scratch. So maybe from uh, would, what would you say among these three is the least invi- least involved from that scale? Maybe epi debridement, probably by itself. Um, yeah, probably that's the least. I mean, yeah, they're all about disrupting the yeah. base membrane so that to try to improve adhesion. Which one do you want to start um, with? Yeah. Talking about. I think stromal puncture, because the rest of them ha- are kind of like subsets of debridement. So maybe we'll start okay. with stromal puncture. So yeah, if you just poke the thing enough, if you like poke through to violate the basement membrane, go through 
even Bowman's a bit, until the tip of your pokey needle is actually embedded in the anterior stroma, your, or even specifically like 10 to 20% of the anterior stroma, of the stroma's depth, that's what this procedure is trying to do, anterior stromal puncture, just basically, I don't know, I think of, uh, what are those things, Iron Maidens, like the the things that have full of spikes? Oh my god, the medieval torture yeah, device? Yeah, I just imagine one of those getting laid I onto guess. the cornea. This is uh, okay. probably why <laughs> I'm a little scared of cornea, folks. You don't know what they'll stop it doing. We're really getting into... <laughs> Yeah, wow, you're, this is really getting to the psychopathology of an injured pal. Let's just keep going. Hey, you take your memory aids where you can find them, right? I mean, no yeah, yeah, yeah. They are. <laughs> um, <laughs> so people apparently just do this with bent, like regular needles, like 23 to 25 gauge needles, just bend it and then start poking around. You're basically in trying, intentionally trying to scar, like create some scar tissue to get that area to adhere a little better through the scarring. So in that sense, it's a little like how you treat a horseshoe retinal tear with uh, laser retinopexy. You're almost like trying to uh, rivet the areas around them by encouraging <laughs> trauma and <laughs> stress, Ben. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh-huh. That doesn't <laughs> are you trying to make a like an allegory here or a metaphor to uh medical training? <laughs> Whatever doesn't kill you makes you a more maladapted doctor. Reduces a reduces the chance of recurrent yes. coronavirus. That is a classic say. My mom said that all the time when I was growing up. Um did I leave anything out here? Extend outside the border. Um, um, yeah. 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 Yeah, so, right, and along those lines, just like you laser outside of a, a retinal tear by, you know, uh, by about three rows or so, here you want to do, um, you, you want to try to identify, as best you can with the exam, where you think the erosion is happening with those subtle clues that we mentioned before, and go beyond that by about one to two millimeters, so you can kind of tack down the epithelium in that area. Obviously, it doesn't work right away. It, um, you should see them in follow-up, and what you'd expect to see are very fine subepithelial scars. But and and once you have that, then in theory, then you should have a, a good, you know, a good outcome in terms of preventing future recurrent corneal erosions. You, you do the things that you'd expect to do after, you know, stabbing someone's cornea. You can put a BCL on because they're going to have a lot of uh, foreign body sensation after. Give them drops like uh, antibiotics or cycloplegia if you want to help minimize um, discomfort and pain. An important thing is you still have to use mural ointment after to try to, you know, like Andrew explained before, to reduce that um, epithelial edema that may re- lead to more erosions. Um, this is kind of a sidebar question for you, Ben, but you ever notice like people with sub-epithelial stromal scars never really seem to have visual symptoms from those scars? I think that speaks to where visual morbidity comes from with the cornea. You can have like a decent amount of stromal opacity, not a ton, but a decent amount of stromal opacity and not have any visual issues. The majority of corneal issues, well, it's much easier to have a visual problem from a corneal issue when it affects the epithelium because that's where the most of the refractive action of the cornea happens is at the uh, air tear film interface. So, you know, you'll see some people with just an example, like stromal, it seems like a stromal opacity in the central center of their vision, classically called central corneal dystrophy of Francois, um, which again, we covered in the corneal dystrophy episode. And it looks like, oh man, it's kind of hazy in their cornea. Maybe they'll have like 20, 25 or 20, 30 vision, but they would never notice 
and they could all have perfectly good vision. So anything short of the epithelium, unless it's a significant opacity, may not really cause many issues. So they still recommend for interior thermal puncture to not do it if, well, it's suggested to maybe avoid it if it's going to be outside the, if it's going to be like right in the visual axis. So if their problem is like right dead center, then you, it may be reason to give pause about doing an anterior thermal puncture. Um, one can still do it, but then you may, it's possible that you could have a little bit more of a visually significant problem. Nice. <laughs> and then I just, I was just reading this. I think it's, it's awesome. Some people will even do use a YAG to do this procedure. It's like the same thing. They use, yeah, they go to like 0 0.3 to 0 0.6 uh, millijoules and it'll like basically do the same thing with the YAG laser. So uh, I'd, I'd, I'd be terrified of doing it that way, but um, it's an accepted way to do it by some people. Okay. And then you mentioned scorched earth. So uh, there's a few other ways to do it. One, uh, and they all had to do with first you have to take the epithelium off. So with anterior stromal puncture, you can leave the epithelium on, but for these, you take the epithelium off. The simplest one is to just take the epithelium off to a mechanical debridement, and that can work short term because then the epithelium will regrow back and hopefully it'll be, you know, it won't be as kind of like that, that slipped rug effect anymore. But long term, it doesn't really do much because you haven't done anything to the basement membrane if you just take the epithelium off. So nothing is going to encourage that better adhesion to the um, basement membrane. Uh, what what can one do after you've taken the epithelium off, Andrew? There's a couple options. Uh, you can throw in some alcohol on there and about how fun sort of you know it's not really lasering or burning but alcohol kind of burns i don't know man i really have a problem with yeah. like painful memory triggers um yeah yeah so the alcohol debridement oh, ethanol geez. debridement can also just sort of stress that area so much and kill all the cells around there that it will start from scratch again you can do that with about 20 percent ethanol you know like a four to five millimeter area across that where you want to treat you can also yeah. even go you know if you want to do your own dirty work and not let alcohol do it for you you can do a superficial epithelial keratectomy you know you take your trusty super sharp blade of choice take off the epithelium using whatever method you want, and then underneath where the epithelium was, just scratch at Bowman's capsule or Bowman's layer with your blade. Perpendicularly, of course, you don't want to like actually leave any linear scars or scratches in there, just as if you're skin peeling a potato or something. Oh my god. You're the one who wrote that in there. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. I'm giving a live reaction because I just heard what you said. It puts... <laughs> The epithelium on the skin. <laughs> oh my gosh! <laughs> um, but yeah, I mean, you know, but that gets to the central point of trying to disrupt. So you're potato peeling and acting on the Bowman's membrane with a epithelial, superficial epithelial keratectomy. Yeah, and you can do the same thing with like right, a diamond burr too. That's basically don't like want to Edward scissor hands it and just yeah burr to it. Nah, whatever. <laughs> yeah, if you like, you should have put a diamond burr on it. 
I think that was funny. Oh I'm going to keep that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so, uh, so just some tips for technique. If you're going to use a diamond burr, applying just enough pressure to indent the cornea, but like not more than that. You don't need a lot of pressure, but just enough to indent it. And then they suggest, even if you know what area of the cornea has a problem, apply the diamond burr to the whole cornea to try to avoid um, inducing astigmatism from this effect. And then the last thing one can try is using a laser. So you, you can use an eczema laser ablation, which is the same thing one can use in PRK, or even like technically LASIK also uses this. But basically you can do PRK, but only for therapy of the corneal problem, which is called PTK. Phototherapeutic? Um, Keratectomy, yeah. Keratectomy, yeah. Phototherapeutic keratectomy. So that's where you do kind of a uniform ablation. Usually it's like about five microns deep. That's all you would need. But, you know, I'm sure some people can go deeper or, or less deep. And that's a nice controlled way of doing it is with a PTK. So, or some people will just do PRK, you know, they'll just, if they wanted to get a refractive outcome out of it, they can just do PRK too. And in theory, as long as you're treating the areas with a PRK that has a problem, then you're, you're doing it. You could even combine a PTK with a PRK, you know, do that kind of diffuse ablation first and then PRK them while they're under the eczema laser. This can be really helpful if there's something irregular in that anterior stroma or Bowman area or epithelium, any of those layers, like if there's some irregularity to it, like maybe from uh uh, band keratopathy or some other weird calcified deposit that's popped up there just kind of scratching at it might not even do a good enough job of smoothing it out in a really regular fashion the orbital strike of an eczema laser will do a good job of at least regularly smoothing everything out so yeah 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 exactly and yeah, because you know, stigmatism can be a complication of like any of these uh, procedures, so or or other you know refractive issues. But that's all we got. We fixed nice. the recurrent corneal erosion. Well, um, until it comes back. <laughs> until it, until it comes back. Uh, if you like to be heard, you can follow us on Twitter at eyes four years with the number four. We've also got our website up at eyes4ears.com with the number four. And uh, I've, I've started being more regular with the Instagram too. So awesome. Look for us there. Yeah. You can do, look at eyes for ears for eyes using his Instagram. Oh, I've been wanting man. to use that title for a while. I'm sorry. <laughs> I might cut that out. We, maybe we should make a more grand reveal for that. Whatever. Um, eyes for ears. ears for for ears. eyes. Oh, my God. <laughs> It's hard finding pictures. I know. Yeah, I, I figure. I don't know. I mean, you could just, whatever. We'll be back next week with something else. Bye. Bye. <laughs> <laughs>